Speaking of Bibles, would you turn in yours if you have one? If you don't, uh, turn in your app. And if you don't have a Bible, would you raise your hand and one of our ushers would love to come and bring you a Bible. And uh, you're, go ahead and keep that Bible if that's your first Bible or if you don't have one. Um, if not, just return it at the end of the service. We have a practice of going through the Bible and we're actually in uh, the book of Psalms here this morning. Uh, this summer, we're going through this particular book. Uh, Psalms is actually the, kind of the Hebrew way of saying songs. And so what we have is a book full of lyrics without the music. I don't know if that interests you or not, but in ancient Hebrew culture, there was no way of putting kind of the music along with the songs. You just, you taught it verbally, you taught it orally. And so they didn't keep the notes, but they did keep the lyrics. Songs, as you well know, have this unusual way of sticking in our heads. And so it's written in a poetic way that, that helps us. And many people, when they are hitting the worst part of their life, turn to the book of Psalms because there's something about this book that, that identifies with where we are at as humans. And it's so good that way. Uh, we've been going through it uh, pretty um, arbitrarily, I guess, uh, over the summer, just kind of picking and choosing different ones to get a broad spectrum here. We're in Psalm 32 or Psalm 32, and let me read it out for you and then we'll get into it. Psalm 32 says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my groaning, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Pray you would open it up for us now. We pray your Holy Spirit would uh, illuminate um, our understanding of this text in a way that is not simply knowledge but becomes heart change. So may these words from you today, may you use my words to change our hearts, Jesus. I know this is a tremendous ask. And it's impossible without your spirit. It's impossible without your power, God. And so help us to hear you clearly here this morning. And we ask these things for the glory of your name. Amen. What we think about sin is primarily what we think about God. What we think about sin is how we think about God. I don't know if that statement makes any sense to you. But it's interesting 
in the past week, um, I actually emailed slash texted a couple of friends uh, from different backgrounds, different spiritual backgrounds, and I asked this question, how does um, the religion or the spiritual way of thinking uh, that you were familiar with deal with this concept of sin? It was fascinating. I found out that it's not very common. It's not a very common idea within all religions. I didn't realize that there's a lot of other religions in the world that never really deal with this issue of, of, of sin. Maybe you're here this morning, you're brand new to Christianity, or you don't like this topic of sin. You're like, Trev, it's summertime. Calm down. It's baby dedication Sunday. Do we really have to talk about sin? And I find this is a doctrine, this is an issue, this is something that's under great attack in our culture. Our world doesn't like to have this decision of right or wrong. Some of the music that I listen to and the lyrics that I listen to, this one lyricist says, I, I went out into the woods and got raised by a wolf because I didn't want to have this decision of having to figure out what is right and what is wrong. Man, it sounds like my culture. Sounds like prototypical Calgary, it seems. I want to get away from anything that forces me to think of what is right and what is wrong. But what's really interesting is this idea of, of sin is very important to what Christians think about sin. It's so important, in fact, that I would say that that statement is true. What we think about sin is actually what we think about God. And that Christianity, in some ways, has a very exclusive understanding of how to deal with sin, how to deal with the guilt. And you're like, again, you're like, you keep saying sin, you keep saying guilt. But this is a real issue that we, we have. When someone wrongs us, isn't there something inside of us that goes, I want to make sure that this is paid for properly. Whether it's us, whether it's someone else, we want, we want somehow justice. You very rarely see someone outside of a courthouse that just comes out and they're, they're the family of someone who has just been innocently killed by someone else in a drunk driver. They rarely, they rarely come out of the courthouse and go, it doesn't really matter what happened in there. I don't really care if justice, if, if this is right or wrong. No, what do you hear? You hear things like, I wish they got more penalty for what they did. I wish somehow they paid for what they did. You know where that comes from? This idea of justice. This idea that there is sin in this world and it must be dealt with. And that internally we will find some way of dealing with it. And so what we're going to deal with this morning is three things that are in this psalm. Of course, three things. What sin and forgiveness really are. How we can receive forgiveness and what kind of implications this will have. Very cerebral this morning, of course, right? What sin and forgiveness actually are, how we can receive forgiveness, and what kind of implications this will have. This psalm is, is again, a, a poem, and because it's a poem, it, it, it helps us decide our reading strategy. That's what one scholar said. Poetry just helps us decide our reading strategy. And our reading st strategy is, uh, poetry is really terse. That means it's really short. It's really, it, it, it packs a punch in a short amount of words. And there's images in here and there's emotions in here that we're supposed to feel. And so in the very beginning, we're going to deal with what sin and forgiveness are. 
The first verse there said, blessed is the one or blessed. Blessed is the way we used to always say it when we were kids. So we say it, blessed, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Here's what I want you to watch as we read these three, two verses. There's three kind of descriptions of sin here. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. It's very, very important, crucial verses. Some figure that this psalm was written by David. It says a mascal of David. Now, we don't know whether David was the author of every single one of the psalms. Um, really, David is the king of Israel, and he's put up as the most important person, the prototypical Israelite, the one everyone's trying to be like. And so he often gets credited by uh, a lot of these psalms. But they relate to a lot of areas in his life and they're just specific enough that, that they do relate to his life and they're just general enough that they don't only relate to his life. Does that make sense? So they're general enough so that we can all receive instruction, but they're specific enough so that it's not just a bunch of general out, generalities. It's not, it's not a generic psalm then. It, it applies to us. And what's interesting is David had a very great fall. He sinned greatly in his life. I don't know if you know this story, but there's two Psalms that they say kind of uh, perhaps were written, or at least David, they really began to make sense to David after he had sinned. Psalm 51, and I think there's about a billion songs written about Psalm 51. My friend uh, used to bug me about and say, oh yeah, like, it's not really music in urban grace unless we have a song about Psalm 51 because it talks about sin. And asking for forgiveness. And, and they say this psalm here, which is a penitential psalm or a psalm of sorrow. In some ways it's a lament, but it has actually a pretty bright feel to it for, for a lamenting psalm, for a, a song of sorrow. And the story about David goes like this. He was the king of Israel and he faced a lot of uh, trial in his life. And it was about 10 to 15 years from the, when he began to be anointed as the king to when he actually took over power. It was a long road. And in the process, he got chased down by the present king of Israel. Very first king, and already there's drama within Israel. Saul's the very first king, David's the second king. And so there's this drama that goes a, lot, a long way. And so David just, he, he battles through it and he, he fights through it and he's very gracious and he's very honoring of King Saul. And then he gets into power and he begins to win battles. And he begins to win favor and he becomes the great hero. Someone said, who is the greatest king of Israel ever? Everyone, every Orthodox Jew would always say King David. He's the number one king. But he began to win a lot of battles. He began to win a lot of favor from God. And one, uh, there was actually a season in which those countries would go to war. And one season, he, instead of going to fight war like a good king would, or at least go on the battlefield, he decided to stay home. And he got bored and he got lazy. And he was sitting on top of his palace one day and he saw a naked woman. And he thought he just had to have her. And so he ends up uh, bringing this lady to the palace. He ends up getting her pregnant Kind of, you can see how this is like major drama. Eh? Yeah, this is actually in the Bible. He gets her pregnant and he's tr he realizes he's done wrong. Now, this isn't just some lady. This is the lady of a commander in his army. And not just a commander in his army, but someone who's very loyal to him. This is a heinous thing to do. 
So he knows he's got to do something. So he tries to cover up his sin. So he invites the commander home from battle, in the midst of battle, and says, hey, maybe if I invite him home, then he'll sleep with his wife. This pregnancy can kind of go away. No one will know. But the commander comes home, and he's so loyal that he says, how could I possibly disrespect my king by going home and enjoying the comforts of married life while everyone else is on the battlefield? And so he sleeps on the doorstep of the palace. So far, David's plan isn't working very well, is it? Keeps covering it up. So he says, okay, well, maybe I'll get this guy drunk. Doesn't work. In his drunken stupor, the commander still won't go sleep with his wife. His sin is still out there. He can still be found out. So he says, I know what I'll do. I'll give this guy the toughest assignment possible. I'll give him a suicide mission. Anyone ever seen Dances with Wolves? Okay, you know where the guy, where he goes, you know, with his arms spread. Spoiler alert, the opening scene is a guy riding on his horse, kind of in a crucifix sort of position. He goes in front of the army, suicide mission, hoping to get shot at. Okay, this is exactly what's happening with this commander. David takes him to the very front of the battle. He says, for sure someone will stab him to death. And you know what? He actually gets killed in battle, of course, finally. And David thinks that he is safe. But a prophet actually tells him a riddle and ends up convicting this King David, the greatest king of Israel, of two things, adultery and murder. Probably the two biggest sins you can commit in Hebrew culture. This is the author of this particular psalm. So if you think that what you're going through is pretty deep, I would say, let's listen to a man who was caught in some deep, deep sin. Now does it make sense when he says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven? Yeah. Understatement of the year. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Again, there's, there's kind of these three ideas here of sin, not, not merely um, kind of exclusive of one another, but they're helpful to one another. Three levels of understanding. Transgression, which is defined as an act of rebellion and disloyalty. God God set a standard in place and he, he rebelled against that word. Some, some uh, translations actually um, have the word sin a couple of times. And, and again, that's, that's not necessarily a mistranslation. It's, it, it's more like a loose translation. It doesn't pack quite the punch. Sin is literally defined as missing the mark. It's actually still used in archery. I don't know if you knew that. If you're aiming for the bullseye and you don't hit the bullseye, you sin. Just a little to the left. This includes all the things that you try to do that you know are right to do, but you don't make. Okay? Concept of sin and disobedience kind of growing. Iniquity is a conscious wrong. This is premeditated or crooked act. 
So everything from the incidental, I tried hard but didn't make it, to I designed to completely go against. Everything in between, in heart, mind, and soul, is included in that. This is not simply, oops, I forgot. This is everything. There are many people that don't believe that sin actually exists. Which is all fine and good until someone sins against you, isn't it? Notice how that doesn't work very well? This, this philosophy that's thrown out there to us in our culture is, what's right for you is not necessarily right for me. What's good for you is not necessarily what's good for me. And that sounds great in theory, until what's wrong for you is right for someone else, and then we have problems. See how that goes sometimes. When someone else's freedom is your wrong or your right is someone else's wrong, let me know how that goes. Doesn't go well, ever. But our culture thinks this is a good way to think. The Bible actually says, no, there is a standard and it's up to God. And it includes the things you should have done but didn't. And it includes the things that you shouldn't do but do. Everything. Amazingly enough, we have also have kind of these three understandings of forgiveness. And they show up in the rest of the text. And so it's not really a point, but it belongs with point number one. And here they are. Remember I said... Transgressions, act of rebellion and disloyalty. Missing sin, missing the mark. Iniquity, conscious wrong or crooked act. Listen to the opposites of this. Forgiveness. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That word forgiven there means carried away. Carried away. It means your sin is taken away by God. whose sin is covered. The missing the mark is covered. Notice in the story of David how what he tried to do is cover sin. Have you ever watched a child try to cover their own sin? It's hysterical, right? You YouTube these? Little kid. He's got like black marker all over his face. He's naked, just holding up a leaf and he's just covered in marker. The wall's covered in marker and the mom there with the video camera is like, did you write on the wall? And the kid's like, no. They look hysterical because they're so guilty and they try to cover their own sin by whatever it is they can do. They hide. You ever try to reprimand a dog? What do they do? Lower their head? Try to cover themselves up? You know, this is interesting. Um, This happens in the very beginning of the story of God. When Adam and Eve are caught in their act of rebellion, do you know what the first thing they did was? They tried to cover themselves up. They discovered they were naked and they felt ashamed about it. And humanity has been covering its shame ever since. Blessed is the person whose sin is covered by God. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. It does not count. It does not count. You think of this in terms of it. it it's almost like this, this word iniquity really has this sense of law to it, of courtroom. A lot of kind of biblical images have this idea of a courtroom. And it's this, there's a real accuser. And did you know that Satan is considered an accuser? He's a prosecu- prosecuting attorney. And he brings evidence against us. He did against Adam and Eve. And he said, you were naked. You should be ashamed about that. So they said, we're ashamed. He brought evidence against them. Here's what God does. He takes that evidence and he says, doesn't count. Can't find it. What happens to a a legal case when someone burns or throws away the evidence? The people go free. The people go free. Can't prosecute them. Can't nail them against the wall. We've seen it in courtroom dramas over and over again. We've seen it in real life in our country. The evidence is gone. You can't make someone guilty. You can't put guilt on someone when their evidence is gone. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Isn't this amazing how important these verses are to us? You know, as I did some study on these things, I realized there aren't very many religions at all that will deal with this. I specifically asked someone from an Islamic background. It's part of our church family. I said, what was your experience with how sin was dealt with? And he basically said, you try to do as much good as possible and if you can't do enough good as possible, you're hopeless. That's how sin is dealt with. The reading of that kind of message would be, blessed is a man who can work really hard to do lots of good to outweigh their bad. Right now, many of you are like, if that was the case, I'm out. It's not possible. You know you can't possibly do good to outweigh your bad. Some religions don't even try to deal with it. There are many religions that they say there is no comparison to this. Christianity is really the only one that seems to face up to this idea of sin and it being dealt with, it being forgiven. And guess who does it? It's all God. You ask us why Jesus is so important to us is because all of those things are done exclusively by Jesus. It's Jesus who carries away our sins at the cross. As he hangs on the cross, he takes the weight of those sins and he carries them away. He sends them as far away as the east from the west, as the Bible will say, which is really far. He covers us. Covers our shame. Covers our guilt. That's why we sing about this all the time. And our sins are not counted against God because Jesus has taken them away. He's destroyed the evidence against us. Now does it make sense now when the author says, 
Blessed is the person who is forgiven. If I'm real honest, I think in our culture, we're taking this way too lightly. I think even in our church, if I'm really honest, we just take this really lightly. If this is true, if everything heinous that we have ever done, if the person who committed the most heinous crimes can be forgiven, then how is it possible that we keep on sinning against God deliberately? How is it possible that we, we don't, this doesn't matter to us, this is not a big deal to us. You know, if you kept destroying a friendship through this, how long would you have that friend? If you had a friend and you said, hey, this is, this is wrong, I don't like you doing this, and you kept doing it over and over and over and over again, deliberately against them, how long do you think they'd actually be your friend? And yet this is what we've done to God. But we can receive forgiveness. How exactly? So glad you asked. Verses 3 to 7. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of the summer. I think some of you can feel this. You ever been like needing a drink of water like I do like every Sunday? My mouth gets a little pasty when I, when I speak. You ever hike? You ever work? And you're just thirsty like crazy? It's just incessant. All you can think about is like drinking water. What you used to pour out on the ground just seems glorious to you now. You're willing to drink almost any kind of water. You'll pick up the garden hose and drink it just because it's there and close by and it's relatively cold, even though it tastes like rubber. This is what this author is saying. My strength was so dried up, I just, there was something going on. I needed something. I needed help. I tried to stay silent, but I could feel the finger of God upon me. Have you ever felt that? Just feel the weight of your sin. You feel the shame of everything you've ever done. The kind of shame where you said, I don't think I could face this church if people found out what I was really like. You ever just felt that? Like, I don't want to see people. I don't want to talk to people. I don't want people to know even close to what I'm thinking or what I'm really like. I don't tell anyone these things in the world because if they did, they would not be my friend anymore. That's what the author's feeling. He knows how we feel. He knows there's this downward spiral that happens when we keep it in. And so what does he say? How can we receive forgiveness? I acknowledged my sin to you. That's it? Yeah, it's there in the text. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Did you hear those same three words? Iniquity, sin, transgression. I acknowledged this to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What? This is the great loophole of Christianity. Confess. Admit. He said it out loud. God, I deserve everything that's going to come to me. I acknowledged I'm a sinner. 
And when someone becomes a Christian, we often baptize them. The Bible commands baptism. And essentially, to be baptized, you just have to be willing to say that you're publicly a Christian. And saying publicly a Christian, the first question I ask you, do you acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of grace? It's impossible to be a Christian without acknowledging your sin. Impossible. It's impossible to grow as a Christian without acknowledging that you're perpetually stuck in a terribly sinful system and you need the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ to get out and that you can't do it on your own. Someone say the church is filled with perfect people. I was like, have you ever been in a church? One of the things I've always loved about Urban Grace is people are real here. Most people. And when you find out people are real, you find out life is a mess. Have you noticed that? Like when you start finding out who people really are, have you noticed how messy life really gets? I know it's how difficult people's lives get. Have you noticed how hard it, life really is? One church in our province has the slogan, no perfect people allowed. And that's exactly right. Church is not a place for perfect people. Church is a place for people who are willing to admit, I need help. That's why some people call Christianity a crutch. I'd say, hey, when you know that you're lame, you need a crutch. The problem is the Bible describes all of us as lame. But my question really isn't, do you understand sin? Do you understand forgiveness? But another friend of mine who's in the medical field said that he studied this idea of the practice gap theory. Or the practice theory gap, sorry. That there's this huge gap between what people have in theory and what they actually do in practice. And here's another thing, if I'm honest with us at Urban Grace. Visitors, you're getting a taste of just what's important here. is that I think there's a huge gap between what we think we believe about Jesus forgiving our sins and what we're actually doing in practice. And that there's a lot of you this morning, there's a lot of us that in practice, we try to cover our sin in our own way. How do we do this, you say? Well, I believe this is, there's something in us that wants justice and understands that sin needs punishment and so we punish ourselves. And some of you are stuck in a terrible cycle of punishing yourself. Somebody has to pay for the way you are. And so it should be me, so I will pay. And so you abuse yourself, maybe it's physically. Maybe it's emotionally. Maybe it's spiritually. I remember very distinctly in college, I knew the gospel, but there was a particular sin that just made me feel more guilty than any other sin. And you know what I did? I punished myself physically. I said, I hate running. Like I hate it. Like I'm using the word hate here to describe running. 
Other people love it. It's great for you. Awesome. I personally would rather sit than run. I'd rather do almost anything else but run. So it was the worst thing I could think of to do to me at that time other than physically maybe cutting myself, which wasn't that far away. But I went for a run, not because I wanted to get in shape, but because I thought if I punished myself, I can atone for my own sin, I can pay for this sin, and I can feel better about myself. And some of you, that's what you're doing. You're punishing yourself. You have shame. You have guilt. You've done something wrong. So you don't eat. Or you eat too much. Or you harm yourself physically. Or you tell yourself crappy sermons like, I'm not good enough, I'm not pretty enough. And you, punish, you lavish insults onto yourself to make yourself feel better and to try to somehow pay for this. I know this room is quiet because I know this hits hard for a lot of us. You don't have to. Blessed is the person who acknowledges their sin. The Lord will forgive them of their shame. Maybe you punish others. Maybe you hate yourself so much that you take it out on others. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you've had a bad day. Someone's been nattering at you all day at work. I bet you none of you can, can relate to this, hey? Never? Never, I know, it's just me. So you're at work someday, and your boss is just... All day long. You don't do this, you don't do that, you don't do this, you don't, and you take it in, you suck it in, you're okay, I can handle this. And then you go home and a spouse or a child does something wrong against you. What do you do? You take it out on them. You scream at them. Someone's got to pay. You see, this is how we're made in the image of God. Somebody has to pay. Some of you punish other people around you. You don't talk to them. You say mean things about them. You put them down so you can be up. That's how you atone for your sin. See? It's a huge gap for some of us in terms of what we believe about Jesus Christ and practically what we do, isn't there? Or you maybe do it like I think hundreds of religions probably do out there and pretty much everyone that I found. You just push it away. You don't deal with it. I know lots of people that this is their way of dealing with their sin. I just won't think about it. I use this example a lot. It's easy. I've got a great financial advisor. People sit down with his financial advisor. He tells me often, this is exactly what happens. People think if I don't think about my finances, they get better. <laughs> and he's kind of like, tell me how that works for you. Pretty good philosophy, Hey. Yeah, you'll be real wealthy at the end of your life if that's the way you deal with your finances. But here's the deal. Some of us do this with our sin. We think if I just don't think about it, if I just push it off, if I just don't talk about it, if I just don't deal with it, that somehow it will get dealt with. No, no, no. You don't 
have to. The Bible says acknowledge your sin. It can be dealt with. You can get to the root of this. You can walk away without guilt upon you. How do you deal with your sin? How do you deal with your sin? I don't know. I can probably presume that it's one of those three ways. Maybe it's something else. This psalm reminds us those other ways are foolish ways because that's what, that's what the author continues to say. What does this mean for us? He tries to start giving us advice. He says this, Therefore, let anyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the, great, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. Did you hear that covering again? This made a lot of sense because David spent a lot of his early life in caves hiding from King Saul who was after him for his life. And so this image of like, I got a cave that keeps me hidden where I won't be exposed for who I am. He says, you are a hiding place. Now, David didn't know how this would work yet with God, but he did know there would be a savior and then God would be a savior. And we can say that hiding place is Jesus Christ. That this is how important this relationship is. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Good image for us in Cowtown, right? You ever seen a horse without a bridle that has not yet been tamed? You can't get a hold of them. They don't do what you want them to do. Even horses that are trained well use bridles. It's very rare that you can ride a horse that simply knows where it's going, willing to be led by the person riding it that doesn't need a bridle in its mouth. And he says, don't be like the horse that needs the bridle. And God has to bring the weight of your sin upon you regularly to confess. He says, if I could do anything, I would teach you this. That's the author. If I could do anything, I would teach you this. Willingly confess. Willingly acknowledge your sin. Don't be like the horse or the mule that just has to be crushed into a corner or yanked on by God himself. Be like the one who gladly trusts in the steadfast love of the Lord. Gladly. Is that you this morning? Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Because the author's trying to say, godly people confess. Those who know Jesus confess their sins before him. The Bible says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. This was John who was very close to Jesus we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some of you just can't hear this enough. 
because the weight of your sin and the way you're dealing with it is not working. And you feel shame right now and you don't even, you don't even want to talk about it. Confessors are forgiven. It almost seems like a loophole. Confess that you are in need of a Savior and you can be saved. Yes. That's why we call the gospel good news. Wouldn't it be bad news if I said, confess your sins and spend about two or three years as a missionary working hard for urban grace and then another five years serving in our church and then another 10 years making coffee every Sunday and then you can be forgiven. That'd be like, yeah, it's kind of decent news. I think I could probably do that. The good news is confess your sins and you are forgiven. Acknowledge your iniquity before God, and you will have your sin and your shame covered. And then forgiveness will really be a blessing. And I'll call the band up this morning, or the two band members. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned, with a rope about his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned. And to hate the evil which has been forgiven him. And to live in honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. So there's an opportunity here for joy, my friends. That in spite of all of our forgiveness, this is the main reason why we do this each and every week. These two symbols that we celebrate, we call them the Lord's Table, the Lord's Supper. You might know it as the Eucharist, Communion perhaps. If you lived in the 80s and 90s and went to an evangelical church, it's all the same for us. It's God's meal to us. It's God's symbols to us to remind us that the price has been paid. That our forgiveness is available. That if we confess our sins, He will be faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And you know how Jesus does this, offers this to us? He first of all came to this earth and lived the perfect life. That's symbolized in the bread. But then he died a horribly painful death. An innocent man who paid for the guilt of everyone by shedding his blood in his own life and giving his own life up. That's what the blood represents. In the Bible, blood is always associated with life. Always. So this literally means God gave his life so that you and I could have our sin forgiven. Now that, my friends, is reason to rejoice. And so let's take part together as the blessing of God.